to Matthew chapter 11. We're back in Matthew 11 this morning, continuing the second sermon from this passage in Matthew 11, 25 to 30. We'll be looking this morning at the, the back end of the text, verses 28 to 30. As we, as we prepare to, to look at this text and the words of our Lord here in, in Matthew 11, I want you to kind of see and be reminded that this, what he says here is not kind of this one-off statement out of nowhere. What he says in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, has deep and rich meaning that fits in the whole narrative of Scripture. You recall for a moment, Genesis 1, we read of God creating the heavens and the earth in six days. You get to Genesis 2, we see that God rested from his work, right? He rests from his work on the seventh day, and then years later, when he gives the law to Moses, he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, the fourth commandment is what? That you shall honor the Sabbath day, a day of rest, and keep it holy. In Exodus 33, Moses goes to lead the people out away from Mount Sinai, and as he prepares to do so, he goes before the Lord in, in prayer in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, and, and hear his prayer. Show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So the presence of the Lord, he says, will go with you, and, and God says, I will grant you rest. But the, the people of Israel then, you may remember if you've read your, read your Bible and remember just the narrative of Scripture, they go through just a, a period of, of rebellion against the Lord. The promised land would signify rest, the rest which they want to get to, that they would seek to enter into, but they never get into it. Why? Well, God tells us in Psalm 95, 10 to 11, he says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They would not enter into the promised land. Why? Because they had gone astray in their heart. They would not enter God's rest. You know, from that point on, the People of Israel go through a period of, of judges who lead them, rule over them, who save them. They go through a period of, of kings, some good kings, most of them bad kings. And we come to the prophets. We read in Jeremiah 6, verses 13 to 16, Jeremiah speaks a word of warning to Jerusalem. Here's his word of warning from the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. They rebel. They reject God. God says, walk in my ways and you will find rest. Earlier God had said, in my presence I will give you rest. But the people reject God and and they soon become exiles under subjection to foreign rulers until Ezra and Nehemiah lead them back. The people had long rejected God's rule, long rejected God's ways, and they found no rest. 
for their souls. And so now we come to Matthew 11. And in Matthew 11, Jesus, who is the way, says, come to me. And what? I will give you rest. And he will later say, take my yoke upon you. Right? Take my yoke, which we'll talk about in a few moments, is a call to follow his ways. And what? You will find rest for your souls. It's the same thing that we've heard throughout Scripture. It's the same thing that God said, in my presence, I will give you rest. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. In, in Jeremiah the word of the Lord says, walk in my ways, find the good way, walk in my way, and you will find rest for your souls. And now Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is the way. He is the very Son of God. The word made flesh. And he's issuing this invitation today. As we go and continue on through the biblical narrative in Hebrews 4, we we learn that those who trust Jesus in faith have entered into God's rest. As they dwell with Him and walk with Him, they may rest from their works, Scripture says. And ultimately, we come to the end of the biblical narrative in the book of Revelation. And we read this from heaven. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. This invitation that we read today has tremendous meaning in the biblical narrative. It's not some one-off conversation that Jesus has, but He is inviting His people into rest. It's the theme of rest that begins in Eden. It's the hope that the Israelites had as they were redeemed from bondage and they looked forward to the promised land where they would experience rest. It's the rest that was experienced in the presence of God and the rest that we ultimately all will have as believers redeemed in glory for the Lord in heaven. Come, Jesus says, come, and I will give you rest. So as we prepare to read the text, the important thing for us to understand is this, is that when we come into the presence of God, He gives us rest. And when we walk in His ways, we find continual rest for our souls. Let's hear the word of the Lord. We're going to start back in verse 25 for the sake of context in case you weren't here last week. The word of God says this, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have here a a really beautiful and a, a gracious, a generous even invitation from Jesus. But one that, that if we respond to it, gives us rest. One that calls us into walking in the ways of the Lord and as we do, finding rest for our souls. What I want you to see right away this morning, though, is this is not an invitation to a religion. This is not an invitation to a set of teachings that Jesus discovered. Something that, that was Revealed to him that an idea or a truth that he's telling you about. This is an invitation to Jesus, to him, to his teachings, his ways, his rest. Just, just look, at the, look at the first person pronouns in this text. In verse 28, come to me, all who labor heavy and laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting us to him. He's not inviting us to a religion. He's inviting us to him. And so the question then for many, for some, is why should we respond to this Jesus? What is so significant about this invitation that we who live in 21st century America should hear this invitation and respond to it and truly come to Jesus? I want to point out three things in this text that we see. One, we see the Savior's heart. We're going to see the Savior's invitation. And then we see the Savior's promise. So his heart, his invitation, his promise. And I, I want us to take them in that order. We're going to begin with looking at the heart of the Savior. In verse 29, the heart of the Savior. We, we begin here because this is the long time in Scripture that we have Jesus describing his own heart. What does he say about his heart? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the, the foundation for the imitation. It's the truth that makes the imitation so inviting, so remarkable, so beautiful, so appealing to us that he is gentle and lowly in heart. But what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to say, I am gentle and lowly in heart? Well, the word gentle is the same word that's used in Matthew 5, 5 in the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the same word there. It means to to be kind or to be benevolent. And Jesus says, I am gentle. I am kind. I am benevolent. His disposition is not one of burning wrath. He is gentle. That's why we see that the the evidence, the fruit of God's presence in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Is one one of which being gentleness. That evidence of God in your life is that you are growing in gentleness. Why? Because he is gentle. That's who he is. But he says, I'm gentle and lowly. Lowly can be translated as humble or or modest. He's not this heavy-handed dictator oppressing the subjects under his rule. He is the lowly, humble, meek king. That's why we're called to reflect and to follow after the example of Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You remember Philippians 2 is the example of the humility of Christ. And we're called to exemplify and to show and to walk and to, to, to posture ourselves in that same exact humility. Jesus, this one who would say 
I am gentle and lowly, who's issuing this invitation to come unto me, we stand in stark contrast to the religious leaders of his day, right? The religious leaders of his day who were, were often seen as proud and arrogant, self-promoting, the, the Pharisees and scribes walking and, and gaining the attention. He addressed that in, in Matthew chapter 6, right? How they sought the attention of others and he warned and he reminded his followers and said, listen, their reward is already theirs. The reward they have is there, right? But seek God and his greater reward we looked at in Matthew chapter 6. His invitation, the idea that he is gentle and lowly, would not only stand in contrast to the religious leaders of his day, but he would stand in contrast to many religious leaders in our own day. Those who would walk in great pride and, and pomp and domineering power. You see, here Jesus issues a self-description, a revelation of who he is, the core of his being that really is a lot different than a lot of people perceive Jesus to be these days. A lot different than people would project Jesus to be in these days. I've always appreciated since reading it what Dane Ortland says in the book I referenced in our, our time as we began this morning, Gentle and Lowly. When he thinks about Jesus saying, I am gentle and lowly, he says this, not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. The idea, so common, is it that God is a God that's just bursting, is, is his balloon about to burst of wrath. What Ortland is saying is, that's wrong. God is as a balloon about to burst of mercy because he is gentle and lowly. His anger and wrath are right responses that arise out of his holiness, his righteousness, his justness. They rise out of the fact that he is holy, righteous, and just, and that he does punish sin because he is holy, righteous, and just. But their reactions, they come out of that. God shows wrath. He shows anger that they are not who he is. It is not the essence of who he is. That's why we read in Psalm 103, verse 8 and 9, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Well, he, he won't keep his anger forever because it's not who he is. He is not an angry God. God does not say, I am an angry God. It is the core of who I am. It is an essential character trait of who I am. No, Jesus here says, I am gentle and lowly. He is a merciful, gracious, gentle, and lowly God. These are traits of who God is. And so he will never cease to be those things. We don't read that he will not keep his mercy and his graciousness forever. It would be a time where God's just no longer merciful and gracious. No, we don't read that in Scripture because God is gracious. God is merciful. He is gentle. He is lowly. Unbeliever, you need to hear that today. 
that first Jesus is calling you to himself. And as he calls him to himself, he is calling you as one who is gentle and lowly. He is calling you as one who is gracious and merciful, who is kind, benevolent, humble. He's calling you to him. Yes, it is true, it is biblical, that he is holy, he is just, and he will punish in his wrath those who do not turn, those who do not repent and turn from their wicked ways. But you're not called to respond to an angry God. You're not called to respond to this God who you come to out of fear and out of dread because he's just overflowing with anger. The God we serve is not one that that we serve as Christians looking over our shoulders fearful of him getting angry or being or just exacting punishment upon us. He's a God that we serve knowing that he is gentle, he's lowly, he's gracious, he's humble, he's kind, he's patient, he's merciful, he's forgiving. And the reason that we can have confidence that all of those are as they should be is because he is holy. And his holiness serves as somewhat of an umbrella above all of those attributes, making his gentleness perfect, his love perfect, his patience perfect, his kindness perfect, his mercy perfect, his grace perfect. It's who he is. And he will never cease to be that. So we start there as the foundation before we consider the invitation and the promise that comes along with it. We need to know the heart of the one who makes the invitation. So now we turn to what the invitation is. Second point today, the Savior's invitation. Verse 28 and 29. We, we, just, we know, if you've been here in the last few weeks, we know that, that Jesus has just denounced those who have refused to repent, those who responded in indifference to his mighty works there in verses 20 to 24. He denounced them and, and, and warned them how terrible judgment would be upon them if they do not repent. Then we come to verse 25 to 27. We looked at last week and, and we saw the beauty and how amazing it is that we know God. Why? Because God has chosen to make himself known. He has revealed himself to us. And now, right after that, Jesus says, now I am inviting you, come to me. Come to me. The invitation is not, again, it's not to a system. The invitation is not to a church. The invitation is not to a pastor. It's to follow Jesus Christ. The invitation is to come to him. And I want you to know the same is true when we issue forth the invitation, whether it's from the pulpit here, whether it's in the foyer, we're talking to you and we're dialoguing, we're talking about the gospel. The invitation is not to come to Grace Baptist Church. The invitation is not to come and to submit to a pastor. The invitation is to come and follow Jesus Christ. That is the imitation. The imitation is to come to him. Churches are imperfect, including this one. Pastors are imperfect, including this one. But Jesus Christ is perfect. We are imperfect. I'm imperfect. I'm a sinner. Christ is sinless. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. The imitation is to come unto him. 
It's the invitation to come to Jesus, who in John 6.35 said he is the bread of life who satisfies our soul's hunger. It's the invitation to come to him who in John 8.12 is the light of the world who gives the light of life. It's the invitation to come to Jesus, who in 10, John 10, 7 and 9 is the door through which we are saved. It's the invitation to come to Jesus, who in John 10, 11 and 14 is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his own sheep. It's the invitation to come to Christ, who in John eleven twenty five is the resurrection and the life, who gives eternal life to all who come to him in faith. It's the invitation to come to Jesus, who... In John 14, 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life through whom no one has access to the Father except through Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. It's an invitation to come to Christ, who in John 15, 1, is the true vine that grants life to all who abide in him and who causes us to be fruit-bearing people, fruit-bearing believers, Christians, Followers of his. It's an invitation to come to him. Now, who does he invite? Who does he invite? Look at your text. Come to me who? All who are perfect. All who have no issues. All who have no problems. All who have it all figured out. All who are super religious. All who have said the right things and done the right things and never made any mistakes. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. We just read of the fact that it's very real that the wise and understanding may reject him. Those who are his children may trust him. The invitation is to who? The invitation is spoken to all. He says, come all who labor and are heavy laden. Well, who are these? Who are these that are laboring and heavy laden? It would, be, it would be the ones that are burdened by religiosity and legalism of the scribes and Pharisees we would, we would understand here as Jesus continues to describe and, and talk about this. And, and we, we look in or look forward to chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. We'll cover that in the next couple weeks. We see here in, in 12, 1 through 14, we see where Jesus speaks in, or, or acts and lives in contradiction to the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees. He, he contradicts that. He, he doesn't submit to all these traditions and rules that they set up. We'll see examples of that in the coming days. But we see perhaps more, more pointedly in, in Matthew 23, 4, we'll get there in the future, in Matthew 23, 4, we see Jesus speaking woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And in verse 4 of Matthew 23, what is the woe he speaks? He says the, the scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to even move, a, move them with their finger. The, the scribes and Pharisees are, are laying these great burdens on the shoulders of the people. They're weighing them down with their rules and their legalistic ideas and interpretations of the law. They're weighting the people down. They're burdening them with them. The people find them hard to bear. They're struggling underneath them. And the scribes and Pharisees don't even lift a finger towards them. 
It's those who are struggling under religious legalism. But it's those who perhaps would be seeking to earn God's approval. You might be trying to earn his approval by being good enough. You're, you're trying to check all those boxes off, right? You're trying to check the boxes of religious legalism, however that looks in your life, the things that, that you figured out, okay, if I do this, I'll look good, I'll look like a good Christian, and maybe it'll be okay for me to go and to walk into church on Sunday morning. Now, if I do this, or if I don't do that, if I say this, or I don't say that, if I achieve that and I haven't fallen there, you're laboring, you're heavy laden. It's those who are heavy laden with the guilt of past sins and things in your life that you hope no one finds out about, you don't want people to know about, so you're, you're, they're weighing you down. They're heavy on your shoulders because you're trying to bear them on, on your own. Measure up to some kind of religious standard. Maybe you're heavy laden and weighed down, laboring under the fear of the future or the anxieties of today, struggling through life. You're laboring to find hope because you're placing your hope in everything outside of Christ. Perhaps you're placing your hope in what you can do, what you can say, what you can achieve. And everything you seem to place your hope in, something jerks it right out from under your feet. Because hope that is placed in anything outside of Christ is always going to be temporary hope. It's going to be fleeting hope that will not last. Maybe you're simply laboring and heavy laden because of a desire to earn man's approval. You're just trying to, to look the part and act the part so that your small group leader appreciates you and calls on you in class. Now you're just trying to earn the part so the pastors are proud of you. You're just trying to measure up to some religious standard. And Jesus' invitation is to come to Him. Come to Him who is gentle and lowly. Jesus says, come unto me. And he doesn't say, clean up and come. He, he doesn't say, figure it out on your own, and then once you figure it out, then come to me. He doesn't say, I want you to say the right things, and then come to me. No, his invitation is what? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. To me. And you know what the beauty of that is? Is that as you come to Christ, He is not going to cast you out. If you come to Christ, you don't come to Christ and then He goes, no, <laughs> just kidding. Like, I didn't realize that's who was going to come. I didn't realize by saying, come to me, that you would come. And so now that you're coming, you probably don't need to be here. So you go ahead and stay there. No. It's an invitation to come to Him. It's the same invitation from the same Savior that spoke in John 6, 35, 37, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he goes on to say, he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me 
And listen, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful statement. Jesus, come to me. Come to me. Come to me, you who labor. Come to me, you who are heavy laden. Come. I'm gentle and lowly. Come. I'm full of grace. I'm abounding in mercy. My steadfast love knows no end. Come to me. Come to me. And all who come to me will never thirst, will never hunger. I will satisfy the longings of your soul. And I will never cast you out. Come unto me. Now, look what he says in Matthew 11. What does it look like to come unto him? What does it look like? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Verse 29, there at the beginning. So in verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's what it looks like. It's to take his yoke upon you. Yoke was a, a metaphor of the law. We, Acts 15.10, Galatians 5.1. You can see the New Testament writers writing and describing the law as a yoke, right? And so that was a metaphor of the law. Well, Jesus says, don't follow and live under the yoke of the law and the Pharisees and scribes, but come unto me. Come and follow my teaching." You remember Matthew 5, 11, or goodness, Matthew 5 through 7, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He, he teaches, and specifically in Matthew 5, 17 to 48, he gets into that text about the Sermon on the Mount and, and explaining the law and the true intent and the purpose of the law. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, right, but to fulfill the law. That's why Christ comes, and he gives that extensive teaching on the law. And he comes here and he says, come unto me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is not calling us to come and to have more burden of the law, more burden of legalism. He's calling us to come and to seek him and to come under his yoke. He's not adding to the burden of the law by building up more rules and more details like the Pharisees. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he calls us to take his yoke upon us. And his yoke is a calling to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and to do those things by faith and dependence and absolute trust in Christ and his strengthening grace as you live. That is what it means to take his yoke upon you. And he says, learn from me. Learn from me. Learn is just a call to discipleship. A disciple is a learner. So the call to learn from me is to follow him as a disciple. It's a call to take his yoke upon us, to learn from him. It's a call that begins, though, where? It begins with following him. Do you see that? The first call is what? Verse 28, come to me, right? Come to me. And then verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You, you don't start by learning. You don't start by taking the yoke upon you and then figuring out eventually I'm going to come to Christ. That's backwards. A disciple of Christ begins by coming to Christ. It begins by faith. It always starts there. If you flip it around, you get into this legalism where you're just trying to do the things and, and trying to achieve something and earn his pleasure. That's not what it is. Remember Matthew 5 to 7, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of, of ethics and morals and rules and standards that we live by so that we can earn God's favor. It's not something we live by to get into heaven to merit salvation. 
It's the other way around. It's a description of the kingdom ethic. It's a description of how we live as believers. It's what, the, what our faith in Christ produces in us. We come to him. He gives us rest. And then we walk in his ways. We learn from him as disciples, as followers of him. And so the invitation is to come to him. Now, you need to consider the promise of Christ, right? If you're sitting here today and you're, you're hearing that invitation, you're an unbeliever, and what is the promise that Jesus gives? So the, the Savior's promise is what? He promises rest to all who come. He promises rest. It's the, the rest that was experienced by Adam and Eve before the fall and in perfect fellowship and communion, communion with God. It's the rest that, that God gives us in his presence. It's the rest that, that continues to well up, we continue to experience and know more and more and more of as we follow his ways. We follow his ways. You, you remember where we began, right? That in his presence he gives us rest and walking in his ways we find rest. That's what he says here. Come to me and I will give you rest. Learn from me and you will find rest. When you come to Jesus Christ in faith, you are given rest from all the vain attempts to earn salvation. You're given rest from the guilt of sin. You're given rest from the legalism of religion. You're given rest from all the striving after the shifting philosophies of man. And as you learn from Jesus, as you follow him, as you are his disciple, then you find rest for your souls more and more and more as you traverse this world because his grace sanctifies you and he molds you in his likeness. You find rest in him. Now, this is an interesting thing, I think, when we think about it, that he says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls right? It almost seems counterintuitive. Why is that the case? How can Jesus say, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest? Well, it's because what? What does he say about his yoke? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This, for me, prompts some questions. Think back where we've been. This is Matthew 11. We've been in Matthew for 10 chapters. Think about some of the things that Jesus has said. Think for a moment. How, how can the one who in Matthew 5.20 calls us to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees say that his yoke is easy? How, how can the one who in 5.43 and 47 told us to love our enemies Say his yoke is easy. I mean, that's pretty difficult. Would you agree? Love your enemies. Well, that's easy. (laughs) No big deal there. How how could the one in Matthew 5.48, who said that we must be perfect as the Father is perfect, say that his burden is light? How can that be? How, How can the one who in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 who called us to choose the narrow way, which he said few will find, and he describes it as hard. How can he say 
My yoke is easy. How can he say my burden is light? How can, how can the one who, in Matthew 10, 21 and 25, promises persecution? That he, he says persecution will come. It's not if, it's, it's coming. It will come. You will be persecuted. Why? Because you're a follower of mine. It's coming. How can he say his yoke is easy? How can he say the burden's light? Knowing that we, in essence, or not in essence, but simply because we follow him, immediately are walking contrary to everything else in the world. We're walking upstream. We're living upstream. And so then he says, my yoke is easy and my burden's light. How can, he, how can he look? We haven't got here yet, but you're probably familiar. You've heard the text probably. But in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, how can he, how can he say that if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily? Take up your cross daily. Turn from yourself daily. How can he look and say, my yoke is easy and my burden's light? I mean, we could go on and on. How does that work? Well, his yoke is easy and his burden is light because none of what we do depends on us, but it depends wholly upon him. So all that he called us to is dependent upon Him. We live dependent upon Him. We don't live according to our own strength. We don't depend on our own abilities, our own knowledge, our own works. But we trust in Christ and in Christ alone. His yoke is easy and His burden is light because we live the life we live in Christ and by His gracious strength. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. When Paul describes his own life, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul worked. Paul was tortured. He was persecuted. And he said, the life I live is anchored in, stands upon, lifted by the grace of Christ in me. His yoke is easy, his burden is light because we depend not on our righteousness, but on the righteousness that comes from God through faith. That's why we, we read in Philippians 3, 9, Paul's desire, he says, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that comes or depends on faith. We trust Him. His yoke is easy and His burden is light because we walk in His ways by His empowering strength. So we read Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
We're told to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And thanks be to God, it doesn't stop there, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. One, one theologian described it like this. He said it's, it's equivalent to the burden of a life jacket that's thrown to a man drowning in the ocean. That man would not go, oh, the burden's too heavy for me to put the life jacket on. The burden of Christ lifts us up by his grace. It does not weigh us down by legalism. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So you need to hear today, friends, that Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will make life easy for you. I'm going to just take trials away. Life's going to be just peachy. He doesn't say that. We don't find that in Scripture. What we do find is that he promises that through the storms of life, your soul will have rest in him. You find that when persecutors threaten, you'll rest knowing that while they may be able to harm the body, they cannot rob you from heaven. You find that when you lose a job or you take a cut in pay or you lose your starting position on the ball team or you get a lower grade on your test because you refuse to cheat, all because you've chosen to walk the narrow way of Christ, you find that in the midst of that difficulty, you rest knowing that Jesus is the greater reward. You find that when you feel the, the sting of your own sin and your own failures, that you rest knowing that your salvation doesn't depend on your righteousness. It depends on the righteousness of Christ. You find that in the difficulty of taking up your cross daily, that you rest knowing that you serve the one who works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You find rest for your souls because in the presence of God, you're given rest in Christ. I'll just give you three closing words this morning. Those of you gathered today who are believers, the, the gentle and lowly Savior who invited you to come in this text, the one who said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, that Savior is the same Savior who is seated at the right hand of the Father who reigns in heaven. He's the same Savior who is our great high priest. And he has not ceased to do in heaven what he did on earth. He continues in who he is. He continues to be gentle and lowly. He ever lives to intercede on our behalf. What a wonderful Savior we serve. 
The second thing I would say to you believers is that we should ever look forward to the ultimate, final, glorious, eternal rest we have in Christ. This should, this should captivate us. This should captivate us. That he's called us and he said, I will give you rest. And we know that in the midst of the trials of life, he grants us rest through the midst of them. But we also know the reality that there will be a day where there will be no more weeping, that the presence of sin is gone, and we stand before a king. That is a glorious day, and it should drive the way we live. It should drive the way we worship as we look forward to him. And then finally, unbelievers, those of you who, who sit this morning and, and you may be trying to look the part, you may be trying to be religious, you may be trying to do the right things or clean your life up, hear the invitation. But know this, know this, that an invitation, regardless of how beautiful it is and regardless of how incredible it is that Jesus would say, I'm gentle and lowly, an imitation that is rejected means nothing to you when all is said and done. It's worthless at that point. The, the imitation stands. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you accept that imitation? What are you going to do with it? Most of you in here already have. Most of you lean wholly upon Christ. And you understand what it is. You understand the truth, not just intellectually, but experientially, that he has given you rest from striving after earning anything, from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin by his grace and his blood on the cross. You understand that. But for others of you in here, you've never responded to that invitation. And so the call, the invitation is to come to Jesus. Scripture teaches that we are to repent and trust in him. That all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. That it's through confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we're saved. So how do you come to Jesus? You come to him in faith. You turn from your sins. And you come to him. It's not an invitation to come to Grace Baptist. It's not an invitation to come to any of us pastors. It's an invitation to come to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternally existent Word of God who came in flesh to dwell among us, who is gentle and lowly, gracious, kind, merciful. Would you respond to him? Would you respond to him today? Let's pray.
Oh God, we bow and God, we bow so many of us in this room as believers, God, as men and women, boys and girls who have trusted you. God, who have looked to you in faith, who have heard the invitation to come to you in faith, God, and we responded in faith. And God, we thank you, we praise you this morning for your great grace. We praise you, God, for saving us, Lord. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you. Thank you for giving us rest. Thank you for the rest that we find as we go through the ups and downs of life. Thank you, O oh God. That while we, we, we don't see just the trials of life erased from our path, God, we know that we walk the path and in every trial that comes, God, we rest in you and your grace, your strength, your presence. And so, God, we thank you. But God, there are others in here, God, today that, that God have heard the invitation today. They've heard it in the past to turn to you in faith, to, to repent and trust in you, Lord Jesus. And God, they've heard that and they've rejected in the past. God, I pray that you do a great work of salvation in their lives today. God, that they would respond to you in faith, Lord. God, would you please work in the lives of our friends here today who have never trusted you. Lord, that they would come to you, Jesus, and find rest. And we ask all this in the name of Christ our gentle and humble Lord and Savior. Amen.